Welcome to our podcast channel, brought to you by the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore. Subscribe to our channel as we provide you with curated content and in-depth conversations by industry experts and leaders across Singapore, ASEAN and the United Kingdom. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of In Conversation with me, David Kelly, the Executive Director here at the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore. Today we're talking about all things sports. My guest today has over 25 years of venue and events experience, working at venues such as Alexandra Palace and Earl's Court Olympia in London. He then progressed through contract management onto the London 2012 Olympic Games organising committee for a three and a half year stint. He's also worked as the general manager for Central London. His venues were based in and around the Royal Parks as well. My guest moved to Singapore in 2013 to work on the Sports Hub project and now oversees the provision of all commercial aspects, programming, marketing, and all of the experienced sports landscape and multiple venues across the 35 hectare Sports Hub campus here in Singapore. I'm absolutely delighted to be welcomed by Damien Bush, Managing Director for Global Spectrum Asia, who run the Sports Hub. A huge thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited about this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, David. Lovely to talk to you, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll have a great conversation over the next hour. Oh, really, really good. So I guess just to start with, and jumping sort of right back to 2012, if I may, I mean, a really brilliant, brilliant Olympic Games that London hosted, a really fabulous, fabulous event. A year for many of our listeners will remember as London delivered the Olympic Games. You were the central London venue lead for the Games, I believe, which incorporated overseeing Whitehall, Buckingham Palace, Wellington Barracks and Clarence House. Can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about how it felt to play such an integral role during such a high profile event? You kind of, and this might sound a bit odd, you kind of just fell into it, really. What happens is you, you start talking with the Royal Parks and you look at some plans and the architects are saying, well, that's a great idea. Let's put beach volleyball there. We'll put the marathon there. We'll put some road cycling there. And you start working through the sports. And of course, all you're doing is working in theory and you're looking at plans and then you have to actually go and visit people and understanding how central London works on a daily basis is an absolute minefield full of different authorities, government departments. And before you knew it, really going through doors you'd never expect to go through in your life, based upon my industry. And there you are, you're at Centre North Gate, Buckingham Palace, and you're sitting there waiting with your little pin badge on and your suit and saying, I'm Damien from London 2012. And you get rolled into the uh, the state banqueting room and you meet Doug King, the Assistant Private Secretary, and they say, go on then, what's going on here? And it it does happen very quickly. And for myself, a great experience meeting everybody from through the military, Downing Street, Foreign Office. It was it was, yeah, it was pretty mind blowing. And then you just kind of got used to it because you had a job to do. And for the Olympics, we used to say time waits for no man. Now, obviously, that's a little bit different at the moment with Tokyo, but there's a drop dead date. You've got to get it done. Absolutely amazing. I mean, he talks about the Foreign Office and being at Buckingham Palace and, you know, representing the royal family. I mean, from a personal perspective, was it daunting? I mean, were you going into these meetings going, I'd, this is this is a whole new experience? And, and did it sort of change the way that you sort of think and operate today, given that you've, you've had lots of varied meetings of, you know, different activities sort of build, building to it? Well, it's, I mean, let me start. It's about diplomacy. And of course, there's an institution called the Foreign Office. Yeah. And uh, a big bit of real estate had a guy called uh, Gavin Marshall who looked after the estate management and I literally sat with him and looked at Google Maps and said who's there what's this 
he was a bit bewildered that I didn't quite actually understand and know what the Commonwealth Institute building did and what their grounds were. And within a week, he set me up with a meeting with them and I'm talking to them about taking over their gardens for six months and holding an event there. And so he really was the catalyst. And uh, a chap called Mark Wazalowski, who still runs Green Park, St. James's Park, they're there on a daily basis and, and they really steer me in the right, right directions. There's so many different aspects to ownership around central London, so much governance. It, it took me kind of a year to work out who I was talking to, literally, because even within the military and talking to the Major General at the Household Cavalry, understanding that you've got to talk to the Garrison Sergeant Major. He's the man in charge of Trooping the Colour. He's the man that's going to let you use his parade ground. He's the man that's going to let you build a 15,000-seat beach volleyball court. Wow. So, you know, that, that actual quite famous chap is... Garrison Sergeant Major Bill Mott, he used to be there in his bearskin as he left Heathrow all the time saluting. And I met him a few times, quite a daunting chap. And I can tell you, when I was leaving Heathrow, looking at his picture, I nearly saluted that on my way out. So it's, it's those types of individuals and characters that, that you needed to get through it. But also there was a massive will of, and we use the phrase UK PLC, we will get this done. We're going to put on a great show. You've got to remember back in planning periods of 29 when I joined 2010, it was this austere time. And we were working towards these austere games. Now, back in 1948, Great Britain did host the Olympics and it was the post-war games and there wasn't a lot of money about. And it kind of felt like we were going down that route. And there was a few key speeches from government and they said, no, absolutely not. We're going we're to put on a great show here. And I, I would like to think people are still reaping the benefit from it because you know what an Olympic Games does for the country looking back the fondness and does for future tourism although difficult at the moment you know, these, these these change people's lives they make great changes so it, you know I really felt like everybody came together and central London was was a great place to be away from the razzmatazz of the Olympic Park we kind of had my own little uh, little fiefdom there where we just got on with it and we made it happen Absolutely amazing. I, David, I was, I was really lucky because a friend of mine had tickets to go to the archery, which was held at uh, Lord's Playground. Lord's, yeah. At Lord's. And, you know, you sort of, you saw all of the infrastructure, you think, really, they put all of this over the hallowed pitch? I mean, it was, it was, it was quite, it was quite amazing. There, there was, there were some very terse conversations about the hallowed pitch at Lord's. And of course, we couldn't touch the square and we put 5,000 beats down, two stands across the middle. And, you know, I walked on that pitch one day uh, being shown around and the groundsman came running over to me. And this was before we'd hired the venue. And I was very clear and put in my place about protocols. There was a concern that the arrows might dip into the wicket as they shot across them. And, you know, we're kind of pointing out that these these guys were a pretty good shot. They would hit a bullseye and it's not likely it's going to fall halfway and, and hit the hallowed turf, if you like. So, you know, you have you have to have a lot of patience and conversations to get people to understand what you're trying to do. It's it's such a difficult event, and we had the road events. They're known as the Ball Lake of the Olympics. You know, we did test events. We shut London down considerably a year before on one of the test events. And you know, just to give an idea, the road race that was about six thousand staff we had on that. At least twelve hundred road closures, two hundred and fifty vehicles, helicopters for broadcast, and planes for communications. You know, that one test event probably cost us in the region of six million pounds just to put that on for a day. And it was great because Mark Cavendish won the test event, didn't win it on the day, Team GB, a year later. But just seeing, you know, him come down the mile 
and the flags there, it was front page of the Daily Telegraph the next day. Now, when you're trying to sell a story and trying to sell people into what you're doing, even though it's the Olympics, you can just hold up the Telegraph and say, well, there we go. That's what we managed. And it, it wasn't easy working with all the stakeholders. I mean, that particular event was, I think we were working with nine Surrey wards. Wow. And, you know, you're trying to put on a road a road race. And, of course, you know, we've got to shut the Sainsbury's. We've got to shut the church. We've, we've got to halt people's traffic. It's... Um, it's a tough story to get through. But then, of course, on the day, probably a million people on the road. I mean, when you're watching it and, you know, whilst I was there, everything sort of seems to go on without a hitch. But there must have been things in the background having to sort of fix almost real time because it's live and it's global and it's being presented to the, to, to the world. Always. It's that it's that duck on the water with the little legs going. Um, yeah. we, we had a lot of VIPs and visits. And I think my first day, the road cycling team, GB, was expected to pedal. We obviously we didn't get it, but... I was just getting people thrown at me. It started with the morning with the uh, Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall, Bacchus and James's Palace, Ferrari Court. Good morning, welcome, welcome to the event. And then the protocol team will say, right, you've got the, the Grand Duke of Luxembourg. I'm like, is that, a, that a nursery rhyme? Is there a Grand Duke of Luxembourg? I'm not sure. But anyway, here's the tea shock of Ireland. And then I was given the great honour of looking after Prime Minister Cameron for about 45, 50 minutes towards the end of the race, thinking on my feet, ah, Prime Minister, come and meet this person, that person. And then towards the end, current Prime Minister was stuck on the wrong side of the road. So our mayor at the time, Boris Johnson, but to find a way of getting him across the road. When, when there's lots of cyclists coming in at a hell of a speed, these types of things are happening. And then, you know, our control room get a call in the ear on one of the road race days, a marathon that Pele's stuck in a car he's trying to get to. Downing Street for a, uh, a banquet or a conference or a reception. So these things do come through. You kind of laugh or cry, but you just get on with it. But it is, it's non-stop. Wow, absolutely amazing. Uh, who, who decided where all of the, the different events were going to be held? I mean, was that, was that a separate committee and were there well, various options or how, how did that work? Yeah, I mean, it comes together. You have an organising committee. So we're, we're kind of the guys that are deemed to do the fluffy stuff. And then... The, the Olympic Delivery Authority, you know, they earmarked many years before I joined. It started in 2005 and it's you know, a great vision brought on board. You had Paul Dighton, Lord Dighton now and Seb Coe, who were the right people at the right time in the right place to bring that vision through. And of course, you know, identifying the areas of East London, Stratford, to, to be rebuilt was, was, was a masterclass when you look at it now. And then for us, it's about how you save money, how you build what we call temporary overlay what can we use to ensure that we don't have these white elephant buildings left afterwards? And that's where you have your temporary venues or existing venues. So, you know, Old Court, lovely old building. Unfortunately, it's been knocked down now. But um, that was, you know, chosen as the volleyball site. And great, it's got 20,000 seats. Get on with it. You know, you save a lot of public funds. they always quote a fee around, and I think the UGB fee was probably 14 billion or so. But of course, it never takes into account all the public service time and the support that you get for it. So literally, you know, we looked on Google Maps. I remember going into the Commonwealth Institute one day, and it's a lovely house bequeathed by Her Majesty for the Commonwealth, and having a cup of tea and saying, do you mind if we borrow your garden for six months? We, we need to build some tents and things in there. And you know, they, they were good. They were supportive. We got there in the end. And, and that's that's kind of how you how you sort of operate. I mean, look, don't get me wrong; it's easier, okay? It is the Olympic Games, and people want to get behind you, and they get excited, and everyone wants to have a sort of uh, a part of it. But there, there's some very difficult conversations on the way. 
It's absolutely amazing. I mean, let's go back to your previous comment. I have, I have got this image in my mind of our, of our wonderful prime minister trying to get across the road during a cycle race, but he must have had loads of memorable moments. Are, are there any sort of that really sort of stick out from the Olympic Games? I think there was one actually one day with my wife because she used to get annoyed if I talked about it before going out to someone's house with, oh, don't mention the Olympics, it's so boring. And then she phoned me up a couple of days before because to get the country excited, of course, they have the torch relay, which is a fantastic event. And it, it, it toured Britain and it, it was amazing. It you know, even went into, into Ireland as well, uh, Southern Ireland. And uh, she just phoned me up one day. There's 25,000 people on the streets. Kent, where I grew up, this is incredible. Do you know what you're involved in? And I, I think at some point, you know, dealing with this, I said, yes, I'm fully aware. Thank you very much. But it was, just was a standout moment that everyone was kind of grasping it, getting excited as you go along. And there was that feeling at the time of euphoria because it really helps when the home nation does well at the sporting events. It brings everybody along. But I could also feel this swell of support from all of the stakeholders as you got nearer to the event. You know, you'd start off with... You can't do that. Well, I'll give you an example in the high, high part where you have what's called the marathon swim. They actually, because you're swimming for 10 kilometres, people as they go around have to eat food. I'm saying, well, you, you, they can't. What if the ducks or what if the geese eat the food afterwards? Is it going to kill them? You can't put a, you know, a TV cable across the actual serpentine lake. Well, why not? Well, swans, they fly into them. They haven't got very good eyesight. You know, you work through all these things. You get there in the end. You get there in the end. But people have genuine concerns. But as I say, towards the end of it, it was uh, it was a great feeling of support, particularly from Whitehall. Clarence House were fantastic. Um, obviously, Buckingham Palace. And the civil service were, you know, right behind you uh, as a machine, as were the military, the Metropolitan Police. Transport for London, well, uh, this is my moment, right? So there we go. Transport for London. We got there in the end. Bit like the train sometimes, but um, there were lots of discussions, particularly on the road race, the road cycling race, because you know you're going to close down High Park Corner. That gets described as one of the busiest roundabouts in Europe, and so well, I'm very sorry, but there's there's quite an important event taking place. So everybody got allocated a, a, a brilliant military command. I had a guy who's now, a, I believe, it's Colonel Chastory, 28th Royal Engineers. And they were fantastic. And so were the household cavalry. I was very fortunate and lucky to, to be on the doors of the, of the barracks there. And really, it was, right, what do you want? How can we help you? We'll be there and we'll do this. And it, and it was just it was just marvellous support. I sometimes look back at that period and, and when, obviously, every country goes for a cycle of, you know, crisis as, you know, as, as the UK is now because of the pandemic and so on. But you think, oh, I wish we could get that type of help and support back. And, and don't get me wrong, it was very, very costly. But um, everything moved like a really good machine. Did you enjoy the journey at the time? I mean, well, I mean when you were... When no, you were going... no, not at all. It was horrible. <laughs> and what you had to do was pull yourself out and realise that you were working on this great... You get stuck into the mire. You're in a bunker. And uh, everyone would go, oh, you're so lucky. You know, and don't get me wrong. It was a great experience, a great job. You look back on it with fondness. But there's some very, very difficult conversations. Um, I got dragged into uh, into Downing Street one day by uh, a gentleman called Tim Luke, one of uh, by Mr Cameron's advisors. We were having a very tough conversation about the setup and impact uh, because at the end of the day, Whitehall was trying to run and operate at the same time, and we were trying to hold a, a sporting spectacular. So at times it was difficult, but when when you when you deal with um, the royal family members 
and, and the different households. They're, they're truly fantastic and had a lovely conversation, sit down with the um, with the Queen's Vicar and uh, T and uh, just couldn't be more helpful. How can we help you? So, but, you know, it's those types of institutions because at the end of the day, they deal with large scale, major events, major crisis on a daily basis. So they're the right people to, to help you out and support you. I hope you took lots of selfies of all of the people that you met throughout this journey. Your downstairs loom must look amazing with all of the photos. Um, I didn't take too many, but there was an amazing toilet in um, talking of loos in um, Clarence House, and that was uh, was known as the Crapper. And uh, I remember being with, uh, I believe it was uh, Wing Commander Richard Prattle of the uh, Clarence House, and came out with a look on my face. I said, "How old's that toilet?" I said, the Queen Mother's been on that toilet, hasn't she? That's got to be over 100 years old. So, um, yeah, I look, you're very lucky going in these buildings, and going in St James's Palace, which is the, the first the royal palace. Incredible to, to understand a bit more about the sort of the culture and the history of the country that you live in. Really lucky to have uh, Her Majesty's Trade Commissioner, Natalie Black, on our podcast channel at the end of last year. And she also works on the Olympics as Chief of Staff to the Director of Security and Resilience. And one of the things that you sort of you both highlighted was just the sheer amount of stakeholders and the, you know, the size of the effort to make sure that it was all going off without a hitch. But with so many partners and considerations, and then it's such a massive operation like that, you know, communication must be absolutely key across, across all those different stakeholders. How did that sort of practically work in terms of updates and making sure that everybody knew what was going on and everything was safe and secure? And You had to take people on a journey and you have to listen to their point of view. And the worst thing you can do in this is say, what you need to do and this is how it's going to happen. And we did. We took people on a journey. I must have chaired so many meetings in the different buildings around there and in the foreign office who were great. And we'd literally spend hours and hours taking them through plans because at the end of the day, it was a massive impact on their daily life. And we had to show them and share with them and take them into confidence. And I think by doing that, it, it helped with the groundswell of support. But yeah, by the by the time I got nearer to the delivery period, sort of, you know, a year out, it was literally three, three meetings a week you're in and you're just giving continuous updates to different stakeholders. And and that was that was a lot of what I was doing as the team were doing the real work of actually busting out the logistics and planning. So yeah, absolutely. Buy-in, buy-in was 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 the big part of it. Particularly when you, you've got these road events, as I say, and you've got we had to get the people of Surrey and the councils of Surrey, the different wards behind us. That was a that took a long time for them to sort of come to the realization of, of what they were involved in. Oh, brilliant! Can we bring the conversation to sort of Singapore? Because um, you know, with your role at Singapore Sports Hub. I always sort of see it as the 50,000-seater national stadium, but it's more than that, isn't it? I mean, what's within the sports hub? What's within your current role as the managing director? Yeah, so look, everyone sees, you know, the, the prime stadium in the middle with 55,000, but if I go around the venues very quickly, you've got the indoor stadium that's been operating since 89. We've got the aquatic centre. It's there for elite athlete training, and then we have daily use and programs. OCBC Arena's got multiple halls with different sports, fencing, badminton, basketball. We've got a gym in there, table tennis, volleyball, netball. Uh, the water sports centre is used with most of the flat water sports disciplines. That's one of the busiest in the country. We've got a museum, sports museum in there. Uh, our precinct, yep, our precinct itself is, is, you know, does dozens of events each month. Uh, on a normal month um, and we've got a sport community programming team that could be doing 100 different workouts a month as well the volleyball court there's basketball courts outside there's a skate park 
And then other bits, not directly under my remit, but of course there's a huge shopping mall there. There's a library, there's a Shimano cycling shop as well. So as, as you go around and move around, it's 35 hectares. It, it, it's, it's, it's its own little sort of town, if you like, of people that come in now on a good year through the actual sort of ticketing side and activity side, you know, it's 3 million plus coming through. And then when you add on the actual shop, the numbers move towards the shopping side and entertainment towards 15 million. So it's it's kicking the footfall numbers pre-COVID, and we're actually we're getting up there again at the moment. We've even got a you know we've had some really good record months with our we've got a surf machine called a Stingray. So wow. there's, there's lots of activities up there. There's a small lazy river and so on, and people are here running on a daily basis. Community groups are here throughout the week, and and they carry on with their own activities. Absolutely amazing. We host international sporting events, uh, the World Rugby Sevens, the Super Rugby, there's international football matches that are played here, but also you, you mentioned you know, the bands as well that you, that you host as a music venue, so Coldplay, Madonna, Foo Fighters. I mean, you, you've got the whole mix. Were there any sort of specific events or, or concerts that sort of really stuck out for you that, were, that you're super proud of? Yeah, I think, look, Coldplay was great. It was 104,000 people over two days. Wow. Um, there was a huge demand for tickets. 35% of that crowd flew in, which for the GDP of the country and beds and heads for the tourism was fantastic. BTS was just on another planet. I mean, if some of our people listening don't know who BTS are. They're a K-pop band. They are the biggest band in the world by far. And with today's media, you know, quite frankly, they'll, they'll make something like the Beatles like a little village hall outfit. I'll say that because we had people coming in from South America and, and that was just incredible. And the work we did on it to understand a BTS concert, we ended up briefing Wembley Stadium and they in turn sending our information through to the Rose Bowl in LA. And we talked to our, some colleagues in Dallas on how to run a BTS concert. It, you know, we, we entered 17,000 kids sequentially by number into the stadium because that's how they insist they're treated. And we used the indoor stadium, 8,000 kids queuing there brought them over, marched them over into groups of 200, another 9,000 went in outside the stadium, and, and the guys put on a great act. So there's a real difference in, in the types of music in the concerts. Of course, we had U2 that played here more recently, and, and you know, that's global news. That's great. That's great for Singapore. It's great for our profile. So there's some, there's some cracking artists that come through. For those that listen to our podcast more often, I'm quite good at asking the silly questions, Damien. And I guess one of them, sort of just having been involved in the, looking at the Transport Logistics and Supply Chain Committee stuff this morning, when a, a band like Coldplay comes over, they're obviously doing lots of different venues around the world, right, on a, on, a, on a world tour. Is it a lift and shift model where a lot of the staging and the lighting is sort of a plug and play and you use the venue? Or is there a lot of tailoring that each of the venues have to do for those? And, and does that create a bit of a headache for you guys? Or, or how, how does that bit work? It changes all the time. Um, some of them just, you know, the sea containers are coming in, the lorries are coming in, and they'll have their own stage. A lot of the K-pop have some amazing stages. U2 was pretty big. They're renowned for that. You look at Jay Chow and what he puts together, it's, it's absolutely enormous with the visualisation of the fireworks, water, the screens, music, the dance. Um, so it does. It just change every time. Sometimes we have suppliers within Singapore who will be able to save them on cost and, there is a big stage that sits within Singapore. It's used for F1 as well. Other times, arena tours, it's a lot smaller what's actually flown in. So it changes. There's there's no sort of cookie cutter every time there is a difference. Have you had any sort of interesting requests that have come on your desk, or with a band or an artist? 
you see, this is what they want to know. They want to know what's in the rider. What's in the rider? Now, the rider is the specific list of requests for bands. And we as the venue don't play a big part in that. At times we are asked or shown or see. So I won't name names. But yes, you, you know, some people want their own gyms, their own workout areas, certain types of flowers. Uh, there's one artist that requests a brand new toilet seat, the cellophane still on it. And actually, when you think about it, and you've been around the world a few times and you've been going for a few years, you probably would want a brand new toilet seat. So, yeah, there are there are different requests that, that, that do come through, but generally not for us. It's the it's the tour promoter. We're just there to kind of facilitate and try and make it happen as best as we can. What about from a, from a venue perspective? Because I, I remember seeing, um, oh, goodness, to show my age, but the, the darkness a long time ago at the Manchester Evening News Arena. And, um, you know, the, the lead singer came in on a, on a on a tiger across the across the audience. And it was all a bit all a bit random and fireworks coming out of his guitar. I mean, have you had anything sort of random and wacky like that? Yeah, so um, we we had the village people come three, four for the sevens, and uh, I forget the name. He was he was originally he was the traffic cop, James Victor, and uh, he wanted to come across the concourse on a Harley Davidson. We weren't really sure. We didn't want him to ride a motorcycle to the actual stadium, uh, and then he asked if we could push him on it as well. And we said, mm, that's, that's going to be quite a lot of people pushing you on that Harley Davidson. So yeah, you do you do get a few few different requests on on people and what they want to do. I mean this, the 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 design of these stages now and, and what takes place is, is pretty incredible and the actual engineering that goes behind it. So, yeah, you do see a few surprising uh, outcomes from it. Fantastic. You mentioned about sort of the, the, the Coldplay concert and how sort of, you know, 30 plus percent of the uh, of the ticket sales came from outside of the country, which was brilliant. You must work really closely with STB. How does your relationship with STB work in terms of creating that cultural mix here and, and supporting tourism into Singapore? Because you, you must be a massive player from that perspective. Yeah, look, they're an amazing team. I'm very grateful for our relationship with them. So quite often or not, they, they get approaches from whether it's esports or whether it's different sporting products, rugby, football, cricket, tennis. And when we get involved in them because often or not, we are the, you know, the venue. And look, what you have to understand about sport is, in particular, putting on sport, it doesn't pay for itself for a lot of these international federations. And what countries do is they step in with financial support. This is not uncommon. This is global. And of course, teams like to tour the world to make money, whether it's a basketball team or an ice hockey team or whether it's the Premier League. You know, the reason the Premier League will play in Asia is because there is finance there for them. And then, of course, it leads into all the merchandise and sponsorship and so on and the branding opportunity. But for the tourism board, you know, they have to look at where they spend their dollars, what they're bringing in and what the growth markets are as well. So it's it's so far and wide, whether, you know, at times, whether we've got mixed martial arts, UFC that's coming in, you know, have discussions about drone racing. There's, there's areas that you wouldn't think as, as, as quite as... Uh, sort of significant but there is interest and growth in these sports esports are big now there's lots of discussions around that we've hosted some smaller esports events here uh, but of course you've, you've always got your you know your, your bread and butter which is generally football rugby and, and that area so there's, there's going to be a lot of interest with Singapore it's very much brand uh, and with respect to you know West Bromwich Albion and Bournemouth AFC they're probably not the teams that are going to get everybody excited here and fill the stadium so we've been fortunate to have the likes of Manchester United, Juventus, teams like that that are, are going to get everybody buying tickets and, and that's all part of the of the planning which can take years to be quite frank to sometimes pull these off. 
No, really, really good. Um, I think we're all missing a bit of the sport, to be honest, at the moment. In 2020, you know, you're, you're such a positive guy, Damien, um, and I don't want to bring it to just sort of a, neg a negative piece of the conversation, but last year was really tough, right? I and mean, when we were going through a really tough time, you know, with you know, events in the hospitality industry having sort of seemingly suffered. And I think it's amazing what the Premier League have been doing. It's amazing what the Formula One group have been doing as well to at least keep the sports going throughout last year. Can you share some of the challenges that you face as a venue operator and how you got through last year, really? It's difficult for us, of course, and you've got to keep everyone motivated and, and working hard towards it. But we just had Green Day cancelled in the last week or so. so. You know, they're a big international act. But gone, we had to move the Rugby Seven states to later in this year as well. So what we what we have got is this great advantage of community venues, and they've been really busy, and we've been doing lots of blended events, which means there's activities that are digital and physical at the same time. And you've got to work within the government numbers, and I've got great empathy and support for the Ministry of Health and how they're trying to fight the pandemic, and you have to understand the pressure they're on at the moment. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really looking at different ways. You've got to pivot, you've got to turn. We're a place and a space. We're made for people. We are made for tens of thousands of people, and that doesn't quite work at the moment. So we found other ways to, to sort of survive and operate. We've just announced that we're bringing an ATP 250 tennis tournament to Singapore in the middle of February. That's going to be a, a huge piece of work for us and the government partners that are bringing this event in. So we are trying to bring events back to the country. We are one of the countries that is deemed to have the pandemic under control. Uh, there are international events that have to take place, must take place before the Olympics. I appreciate that's in question. That's not for me to comment on. But oh, sure. there's qualification events that are taking place for different World Cups, um, World Championships of every type of sport and training that has to take place. So it's really under the measures and how you control and manage it and what you can do and what you can't do. Uh, and that actually keeps us incredibly busy because we're forever kind of writing plans, sourcing information and working with government partners to say, can we do it this way and how can we do it? So as much as, you know, we're not seeing that throughput from the perspective of the team, there's plenty going on for us. Wow. I mean, naively, I didn't even think about the qualification stages for, for the Olympics as well. It must be really difficult to plan, right? It must be really difficult to look at what's actually going to come in the future because things can sort of change so quickly. I mean, we saw just before Christmas, the travel ban from the UK, for example, you know, because Singapore's doing such a good job of containing and keeping everybody safe. It must be really challenging. Yeah. So um, what is good is that there is still a global desire for sporting content and musical content as well. And we are getting approached all the time. So where we're looking at post-October of this year, it's quite an exciting calendar and quite an exciting lineup. It's really a question of what can we do and, and what sort of capability we've got to deliver to make it viable. And there's obviously commercial sensitivity around all of this. But that doesn't mean that we're not planning for it. But a lot of these events do require a good nine, ten months from sort of agreement to get going and everybody's being as flexible as possible. So it's still there. It hasn't gone away. And Singapore still has that desirability as a, a location. It's just it's very attractive for the market. So we're, as much as it is hard, it's a bit disappointing. We're, we're kind of, uh, I use it to say, sometimes we're sort of laying in the gutter looking at the stars. We're within grasp of it. And hopefully the stars are coming in a bit closer to us and we can grab them. So, yeah, a lot, there's a lot on the horizon. 
Well, brilliant. Really, really exciting. And I think, you know, as, as things were sort of kicking off at the beginning of, of 2020, you stepped in quite quickly, I think, as an organisation to support the government with, what, 3,000 plus foreign workers. Could you just tell us what you did around that as well to support the government? Yeah, and look, this is where I'll shout out to the events industry. And I think globally they did a lot. And for people familiar with some of the venues in the UK, Millennium Stadium, the XL Centre, I know some of them weren't used to great capacity. That was... It wasn't just the military there. It was actually the event industry that came in and put these venues together. And that's very much what we did. And we worked with the different government agencies and ultimately goes up through the um, Ministry of National Development, Ministry of Health, and said, hey, we're good at this stuff. This is what we do. And in a very short period, we'd um, transformed the OCBC Arena and the National Stadium, areas of the uh, Aquatic Centre, warm-up track, uh, and we had 3,000 people living here under you know conditions where they had to stick to rules and regulations so we managed to adapt the venues and of course we've got great skill and expertise it wasn't long before we were serving hundreds of thousands of meals i think we did 485,000 meals out of our kitchens during that period Uh, you got to keep people entertained but that's okay we've got video boards so there's the cricket there's the cookery show people were coming in and there was barbers there was shops there was, you know, socially distant sports such as frisbee with a glove on. There was activities. There was birthdays. There was music. And there was exercise areas, and and it, and it was tough for, to to get it together in the first instance. But we did a great job, and I think the government of Singapore acknowledged and realised that that's an area where we can put our expertise in, and it was uh, fantastically satisfying to operate that for a few months. We had two twenty four seven control rooms going, monitoring, supporting, helping. And there was just there was a lot of activity that took place in and around it. It was a lot of movement. And, uh, you know, the whole country was pretty much mobilised. We had our area. It was a pretty big area. And we had to concentrate on doing that right and delivering it properly. And I'm proud to say that with all the partners at the Sports Hub, I think we did a, a really good job. That's amazing. Uh, I think that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that. Because I, I think I, I did. I, I was completely unaware uh, until we were sort of doing the research for this chat today. Um, so I think it's brilliant how much was going on behind the scenes. You should be really proud of that. Yeah, yeah. The team were, and uh, they laughed at the end and said, "We're never going into hotel management." That was their own view. <laughs> but um, as I say, everyone was learning, learning to do something different. And and what was also good was. We could keep our medical supplier working, our security supplier working, our caterers were flat out 24 hours, uh, our cleaners, our FM team. So during a period where, you know, it's difficult, you've got the casual staff you wouldn't normally be employing, it was great. People had, you know, had jobs and and, and they had a, a really good government national task to get behind. So, yeah, very pleasing, very satisfying during that period. Any any arguments over the remote control for the big screens on what was going to be shown? Well, I have to say, we, we did show a lot of cricket. It was very popular. So uh, I, my team was often surprised when I'd walk in and go, oh, the West Indies versus Sri Lanka then. And yeah, so there was um, there was plenty of TV uh, that was taking place just to try and get people interested. And look, we had amazing Wi-Fi across all the venues. And I think there was 175 films available for the guys that were staying there as well. So all of this was given great thought about, you know, entertainment. It's, it, you know, it's hard being kept within an environment. Keep people busy was the, was the main, uh, main gist of it. Really good. 
So I guess sort of transitioning, hopefully, to a slightly more regular, normal pace of life in the future, hopefully not too distant future. We've heard a lot of, about sort of hybrid events and your esports piece. Yeah, how do you sort of foresee that sort of being mapped out in the future for Sports Hub? And sort of what's next and what can we look forward to? Coming on the lines of esports, there's, there's huge tournaments that take place. We, we've held one before with one, which is the mixed martial arts event holder that we have. We do a lot of events with them. They've moved into that area as well. We, we've got a few pieces on the horizon in esports in that area for the youth. On, on the other side of things, as I mentioned before, there are international concerts, international sporting events that do want to come. They want to be here in this country. We've got international sports teams that would be looking at us as base camps, potentially before the Summer Olympics, if it goes ahead as well. And within our own sort of community of venues, we're always trying out different programs, different sessions. I've got to say, our sport community programming that takes place nearly every night around the site, whether different Zumbas or yoga or so on, I mean, they are so well attended. Um, and at the moment, it's restricted numbers. So once we can get those numbers up again, we are just very, very busy and very vibrant all the time. So, and, and the team's always working on thematic campaigns to try and bring people here and working with different partners. So we're very fortunate. We've got a lot of government agencies that support us here. And when we can get back to a level of higher footfall, then we'll be bringing those types of events back in the community events and working with the Health Promotion Board and so on. Super. David, there's a question I ask all of our guests, if I may, and it's, if we can give you the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore's time machine, because you've had such an amazing, colourful career, and you could transport yourself to a, a point in time where, with the knowledge that you know now, you could go back. When would you go back and tell that something to yourself, and, and what would that be? Oh, I wish you told me this question before, David. I've got to think now. Um, yeah, I think I've been quite fortunate because I've followed a very strong strand of study and sort of working career. So I, I've been in I've been in the same area. I guess at times, uh, you, you know, as an individual, you always doubt yourself. I think I'd like to have gone back and probably given myself a, a bit more of a talking to and get started on a bit more confidence in certain periods. But uh, I guess at the end of the day, I've coped all right. I've kind of got to where I am. But maybe some periods in my early 20s, I probably needed a little bit of a kick up the backside to try and focus in, study a bit harder, go to the pub less, go to football less. But I don't know. <laughs> Who do you support? Oh, well, I'm one of these Chelsea fans, you see. But um, I started going into Chelsea back in 1986. So uh, it wasn't just the glory days. I've, uh, I've been to a lot of second division grounds in my time. And uh, very fortunate, uh, a few years back, Chelsea actually came over as well which is fantastic um, because I had friends that, that actually that came over to the stadium. So, so that was a nice touch. But you don't get yourself embroiled and you have to distance yourself from the acts and you have to distance yourself from the entertainment and the sport. Uh, and that's something we teach all of our teams in our venues. And uh, there's, there's nothing more I appreciate when we name a certain event that might be coming up and I see a bit of sadness in my team's face when most of the world will be going, wow. So what's up with you? You know, oh no, really? That's going to be really tough. And that's when you know that the uh, the team members have, have kind of got it to that point. It's a, it's about the work and about what we have to do to make to make the events happen. Particularly with some of the younger ones, it's it's fantastic to see them grow and come through the ranks. What I should say is, that as an organisation, is you start off with a lot of foreign imports here. Our company now, we're 93% Singaporean and we're 63% female from a diversity inclusion point. That's great. 
And we have a brilliant intern programme and work very closely with lots of the polytechnics, particularly Republic Polytechnic. So, you know, we've probably taken on 30 plus kids over the last few years to bring through our ranks in an organisation of 140 plus. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been really good. And there's some, some figures in there that we're very proud of that we've achieved. Damien, it's amazing to have you and the Sports Hub team as members of the Chamber of Commerce. It's been a brilliant conversation today. It's been so good just to sort of go through your career and your learnings and your experiences and your stories and your and your memories. And also to hear the, the, the brilliantly influential work that you're doing here, more latterly over quite a challenging time for everybody in the world with the pandemic, but also all the brilliant culture and, and experiences you bring to people's lives to enrich them. And it's been such a privilege to talk to you. I could talk to you for hours, but we, we need to get you back on. We really do. Um, and I can't believe we mentioned toilets twice in this conversation as well. So thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been great. Been very nice chatting. Thanks a lot, David. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can share our podcasts and tag us in with the hashtag BritJamSG on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. For more information on the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore, please visit www.britjam.org.sg or should you wish to get involved with our podcasts, please feel free to contact us at info at